Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest podcast number 942 with author Rebecca Costa about her book entitled On the Verge. This podcast number 942 is brought to you by Finian Kelly for his program entitled Intentionality Living Guide. If you want to learn more about Finian, what he does, his achievements, please visit his website at www.finianKelly.com. That's www. F-I-N-N-I-A-N-K-E-L-L-Y.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my engaging interview with author Rebecca Costa about her book entitled On the Verge. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And we have returning author and guest joining us from near Astoria, actually, um, and she's on the coast of Oregon. She says just a little bit uh, away from Washington. She was a guest back in August of 2015 uh, about her book called The Watchman's Rattle, which really is extremely, best way to put it, a very thought-provoking book. She subsequently wrote another book, and this book isn't brand new by any means, but I wanted to get her on the show because there's so many things that she's speaking about in On the Verge that really relate to the world today that are definitely still very valid today. And I always like to make these discussions um, stimulating. Good day to you, Rebecca. How are you doing this rainy morning for you uh, and this dry morning for me down here in San Diego? (laughs) (laughs) All we have to do is find a way to build a pipeline from Astoria where we get 18 feet of rain, not inches, 18 feet of rain to you in Southern California. Yeah, well, then then we've got the problem solved. And you can solve your economic problem, too, because we'd probably pay a lot for that water. (laughs) So Oregon and Washington could solve it. Well, I'm going to let my listeners know the prior podcast was... uh, podcast 536, I think it was. We're now on 900 and something. So it's been 400 podcasts ago uh, that Rebecca was on the show. We're going to put a link to the Watchman's Rattle uh, uh, podcast as well, uh, because it was I, I just listened to it again. It still gets lots of downloads, even after almost seven years. Um, and that's the interesting thing about podcasting is um, these are evergreen. Uh, they stay out there, they get circulated, and so I encourage my listeners to go back to the archives as well. But Rebecca is an American social biologist and futurist. She's a preeminent global expert on the subject of fast adaptation and, and, and a recipient of the prestigious Edwin O. Wilson Biodiversity Technology Award. Her career spans four decades of working with founders, executives, and leading venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. Uh, Rebecca's work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, The Guardian, and other leading publications. Um, She presently hosts the popular news podcast, The Costa Report. And I would encourage my listeners to go to her website. It's just RebeccaCosta.com. There you're going to find very interesting opportunities to engage uh, to get more information, to sign up for her newsletter as well. And I would do that if I was you, because um, she is still writing another book and it continues to do her research. And uh, it just would be a great place for you to go 
to kind of keep pace about what's going on in the world. So along the 12 world-renowned subject experts and also serves on the advisory committee of the Lifeboat Foundation, along with futurist Ray Kurzweil uh, and Nobel laureate Daniel, how do you say his last name? Kahneman? Kahneman. Kahneman. Okay. And many others. But Rebecca is really just a global thinker. Um, there's much more you could get from her bio by going up to her website. Without further ado, though, I'd like to get into it so that we don't just use all my time reading her bio because her bio is, is is long because she has quite a history. Um, but well, that is that's what happens when you get old. I know your I'm bio be, is too long. <laughs> you know, my bio maybe isn't as long as yours, but <laughs> I, I tell my listeners I'm going to be 68 in July, and I don't know how that crept up on me, but you know, it is <laughs> what it is. So, um, I have seen the hair go grayer as I've been on this podcast 15 years. Um, you know, I did say that we conducted this podcast back in August 15 about the book, The Watchman's Rattle, Thinking Your Way Out of Extinction. And, you know, historically, uh, civilizations have gone extinct. And I think there's many books out today, you know, about, hey, how, however we do, is this society going to go extinct? Is that society going to go extinct? Um, and if you looked at all the the nexus of everything that's going on right now, you might say, Wow, we're all doomed to go extinct, right? Just because it seems like there's a perception uh, that that's what's going on. I I know that you're working on this other book, and you just gave me the title of it, and I won't give it to the listeners. Um, but on the verge, you know, it focuses on pre-adaptation, the ability to adapt before the fact, um, and that's a word I think you coined because I actually looked it up in. Uh, I hadn't seen it anywhere. So I was looking to see, you know, was that a Rebecca Costa thing? And I think it is actually, because it's nobody else. So if you'd speak about our listeners about big data, which they know about, predictive analytics, genomics, and artificial intelligence, and are making pre-adaptation possible. And what does this mean for the civilization as we know it? Because if these predictive analytics can help us mitigate all this, why are we still having all this challenge with what we're doing, our environment, our world, everything else? Because there is a lot of technology out there, but it on the outside world doesn't seem to be solving what the problems seem to be getting bigger and bigger and going faster and faster. Well, you've summed it up. <laughs> and that is the million dollar question. Um, well, so l- let's start with data. Uh, okay. The amount of data that we're creating right now, and this will not come as any surprise to your listeners in particular, uh, we create as much data in just a few weeks as we created since the beginning of humankind, right, to present day. So the volume of information uh is phenomenal and far more than any human can wade through. All you have to do is be a nonfiction writer like myself to know that um, you write a book and 10,000 people say, hey, you left this out. You left that out. You, you, what about this study? You know, and suddenly it comes flooding in and you feel like you wrote the most incompetent book because you didn't get to all of the data, right? So, Or you um, just go to Amazon and you look at all the new releases and you say, 
data. You can't possibly My goodness. read them all. I, yeah. I mean, like you can't read every study. You can, you can't mm-hmm. stay on top of it. Exactly. But what? But but there's a benefit to all of that data, and that is that we have artificial intelligence, and artificial intelligence is like taking you know um, the human brain and you know boosting it up to uh, levels that we can't even comprehend. Where AI machines can look at all data at every single nanosecond in time and make analysis. And what that's done is it's, it's created a sea change because now combined with predictive analytics, we've gotten very, very precise at being able to anticipate with very high degrees of accuracy what the next event is going to be. Now I'm gonna use a very simple example that I, I think I use in my book. And that is that today we can predict that you're going to trip and fall within a two to three week window with about an 85% accuracy. I know you're going to trip and fall with such, and, and we know if, I, if it's 85% accuracy today, we know how technology goes. It'll be 86%, 87% until we're going to get to the point where I can predict with 99.9% accuracy, you're going to trip and fall in the next hour. That That's how technology moves. Now, that'll be good how for can people, I know that? That'll be good because, for the senior community. Well, well, I had, well, think of how many seniors lose their ability to live independently after they trip and fall. They break their hip, and it's kind of the beginning of the end of living by yourself or living but, in your home. But speaking about that, you know, it. I worked with a young gentleman at UCSD who was measuring seniors' gait. And when the gait changes, literally that's when they can predict that these people are going to have a fall. And and a lot of times a serious fall that ends up in their finitude, right? In other words, they die. You're walking, your normal walking gait. You know, everybody has a normal walking gait. It changes by two, somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three centimeters. Indiscernible by the human eye. But if you put a Fitbit type of motion detector on a senior's ankle, it would be able to ping your phone, right? Or or, uh, ping your caretaker and say, hey, this person is in danger of tripping and falling. Because we now know, which we didn't know before, that the change in your normal walking gait is the precursor. Mm-hmm. So That's now right. that we have that information, we can do something to head off the negative consequence, well, but the negative this, outcome. This thing does now. That's too. that's right. That's that's right. So so when you really think about it, we're in a position now where we know the future. We know where the tornado is moving. Mm-hmm. We know, right, we know where the weather events are going to occur. And we're we're getting more and more accurate because we put those ghost satellites up that gave us four times and five times the resolution and data. And five times the data translates into an incredible uh, increase in accuracy. Not five times, but many full times. Agreed. So as we're getting better and better at predicting the future, it changes the actions in the present. Right, we can evacuate entire cities prior to floods. We we didn't have that ability. In fact, here in the northern coast of Oregon, the other day I was getting ready to go take my dog for a walk, and my phone pinged, and it said rain in five minutes. Yeah. Could could you even imagine that? 
I, I, I mean, 10 years ago, could you imagine that you would be warned that it was going to rain in five minutes? I couldn't imagine it. I also can't imagine I'm an avid cyclist. And I just showed you this watch. When I hit a bump hard in the road, the, the uh, accelerometer goes off and sends a message. And it says SOS. And it says, are you okay? Did you fall? Right. So in other words, this little device is actually, besides all the other things it does, it's your O2 and your, you know, your heart rate and everything else. I would have never imagined that 10 years ago, I would have a device that would do all of this stuff, measure it. It's crazy. Yes. And, and so when you look at all of that data, it presents an opportunity. Right. Uh, it, and, and the opportunities are, are twofold. One, the opportunity to head off a negative outcome or right. experience and the opportunity to get the jump ahead of everybody else on what's coming. Right. So uh, this is where predaptation comes in place. We're no longer adapting to change. We can't adapt to the speed of change anymore. That's that game is over. Yeah. We're now adapting to the speed of what the future is likely to bring. And, and so we have to get out in front of change. Yeah. It, it, it's no longer sufficient to say, oh, the storm is here. Maybe I better go look for some sandbags. It's just too late. And so uh, many times when I'm consulting with large corporations or governments, you know, I just came back from Dubai where I was, you know, consulting with the government there. You, you have to have uh, a program that is out doing reconnaissance and, in, and investing in predictive analytics to know what's about ready to hit you. Because if you are preparing for that and you aren't adapting to the future, then you're just in a reactive mode. And that's a losing proposition when you consider the speed of change and how much available data, and I'm not talking about getting into private citizens' data. I'm right. talking about public data. You know, in my book, I talk about Recorded Future. Right. Recorded Future went out and got just public data, and months before the Arab Spring began, they predicted it would begin in Yemen, and it would spread to other Middle Eastern countries. Now, Needless to say, their biggest client is the U.S. CIA now right. and, and intelligence, all, you know, uh, organizations all over the world because they knew the data was out there to predict revolution and revolt. And they were right. Well, look, if you look at uh, and this is a nexus of all of this data, if you look at COVID and you look at the war and you look at inflation, and you look at what's going, all of these things that are happening right now is, is the same time simul simultaneously. Could we have predicted this nexus of all these various things that are occurring that are having supply chain issues that you know we're, we've run into? Um, I mean, you, the myriad of problems, the labor problems, it goes on and on and on. I mean, if you want the to start checking boxes. The question I have boxes, for you is, it, it's a difficult question to answer. Because when you say, could we have predicted? Well, I could, would say, no, the human brain, right, is limited. Yes. Uh, we, can only, we can only track four things at one time, and that's on a good day. 
Could the computers have predicted? You know, I I ask multitaskers this question all the time. I say, how many things can you keep track of? And it's always 10, 12. And I go, no, actually, we've tested this. Your brain can only track four things on a good day. So the other things is pretend multitasking, right? Right. That That you think you're monitoring. So when you ask the question, could we have predicted? I'm going to say no, humans couldn't have predicted. Machines. Could artificial intelligence married with predictive analytics have predicted? The answer is 100% yes. Yes. All of, all of the things, the greatest threats that humanity faces, whether it's war, whether it's an epidemic of depression or addiction, pandemic. right? Yeah. Uh, the, pan, the viral, how the virus was going to spread and how many were going to die. These are all known things. They, we know them before they occur. This is the sea change. We know what's going to happen before it happens. In no time in human history has that been possible. So once you get this, we we paid we paid tarot card readers and Rasputin and you know people to predict the future, but now it's data based and and we have uh, an uh, incredible amount of accuracy. But data is absolutely no good if there's no action. So look at the prior administration, and they had the data about COVID but didn't take the actions necessary. Now, the Chinese government on the opposite side is super precautious with with this. And I'm just saying, we have data, but if if administratively a government, a person, a whatever, is either blinded by or can't see or somehow has the data, it's presented to them, they don't have the critical thinking skills, what what good is the data? (laughs) That's my point. I'm a sociobiologist, so I do not look at our inaction the same way that maybe politicians do or economists do or other people do. So I'm, I'm going to present you a, a, a kind of a radical way to look at our inaction. Okay. Right. We're all trapped in this biological spacesuit. I know that we believe it has infinite capabilities, but as I pointed out, you're only able to track four things at one time, not 12, not 15, just because you wish it to be so. Got it. In that same way, this biological spacesuit is designed to look for lions in the Serengeti. Mm -hmm. If we we come upon a snake – our bodies are rushed with chemicals immediately. It's instantaneous. And we go into fight or flight mode, into action. Or freeze. Or, well, we generally won't freeze. Those are the people that don't survive. And we're <laughs> the survivors of those that ran or fought. Well, I mean, remember that there's there's genetic filtering that goes on. Yeah. So we, we like to think that we're the descendants of those that did not freeze. Yeah, okay. those, that genetic pool went away. Um, but but I but I want you to think of of your body of being trapped in this body that has all the information that knows what's coming, but is not designed to have its heartbeat even go up one beat an hour. Right. When I talk to you about global warming or right. global burning, as we're discovering, and we made that transition to global burning now. So we are not designed physiologically to do anything about a long-term threat. 
we are only designed to respond to an immediate threat that threatens our survival. And, and so you can give somebody all the data in the world and say, you know, look at this movie on this dystopic future. Look, we're going to run out of water. We're all going to burn up. We're going to have to escape to another uh, planet. We're going to Mars. We need to make our preparations now. You can tell people all of that and nothing happens to their body, right? We have not evolved that capability yet. And, And we must remember that we're prisoners of our body, of our biology. What has happened now is we're a little bit, our biology our, the evolution of our biology is very, very slow. It changes in millions and mil- over millions and millions of years. And yet the environment that we're trying to adapt to is changing in, in nanoseconds. Exactly. And so I'm glad we, you pointed that out. Discord. We have it. We have, we're out of alignment with our environment. We well, can't I- be fast enough. I have this debate with many authors that come on the show, depending on the genre they're speaking about, whether it's spirituality or we're trying to uh, transition and become more conscious and aware individuals. And I think it's aware, but it's also to have the intelligence to act, right? And, And we are evolving. I do see that happening. And as you said, I see it happening very slowly. You know, I... I know that, and and I turned off all my cell phones, but the cell phone obviously has become the one instrument in the world that connects everybody. Um, And you state it wasn't until recently for the first time that predictive algorithms powered by lightning fast computers and mobile communications brought the entire universe of human knowledge to man's fingertips. Okay, they're getting knowledge. Are they doing anything with it or are they just playing on Facebook? Um, that, that this technology has made it possible to string together millions of variables in real time, you stated in the book. You state that this has given us staggering power, the power to reverse engineer the consequences of our benign actions, just what I said a minute ago. If this is the case, why have we not seen more advancement regarding the most concerning problem that I see, which is global warming, global burning? We'll say global burning. Um, you know, you just talked about having a huge rainstorm up there, and I talked about having nothing down here. Uh, California's fires last year burnt millions of acres. Um, you know, we see this happening all over. Insurance companies are concerned. They're raising rates. They're using computers to try and predict all of this stuff and figure out if they can withstand the risk. There's a lot of different things going on. Could you address it, though? From your perspective, well, I, I still get back to you know, you know, we we haven't come to terms with what humans are, yeah. right, and what we're not. And if we would just admit to ourselves, hey, we're not hardwired to respond to long term threat, no matter how much data and how much foreknowledge we have, we are unlikely to act in time. We mm-hmm. keep making the mistake that we think we have more time than we do. And part of that is also physiological and biological. Our brains think of problems in a linear way. So when I give um, audiences that I speak to simple exponentiating problems, right? Nobody likes math problems, but uh, very simple problems, they always get them wrong. 
because our brains don't think in exponentiation. So the worst type of problem we can have, like climate change, is one that is exponentiating and moving quickly. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, that combination is deadly to the human brain because we think we have time. And isn't that the situation? We thought we had time to vet, uh, you know, um, uh, certain countries for NATO, right? Uh, right. The Ukraine. We, we thought we had time to let their government form and prove that, it, that they had weeded out corruption, right? We right. thought we had time to admit Finland and other countries into NATO. No, no, we didn't. <laughs> no, we didn't. Uh, uh, we think we have time to deal with the, the deficit. Right. Uh, and the fact that uh, the United States is just printing money as as a, as a solution to the virus, to, uh, you know, uh, all the financial problems that we have. We don't. Um, by the way, I'm going to take a little offshoot here because it's 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 um, it's relevant. Most of the best economists that I know predicted high inflation, runaway inflation. And I listened to them. And a recession? Uh, I don't know about the recession. I, I, you know, the, the, the data is mixed right now, to be honest. But going into hyperinflation was not even something that was surprising. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and here is one reason why. Because the only let lever that a government has to bring down a growing deficit right. is inflation. Right. 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 If if a dollar is only worth ten cents, then your debt, then your deficit has come down ninety percent as well. Correct. So in proportion, what we owe will be reduced by hyperinflation. So it, it, eventually, you run out of levers. You run. So out is of that the good news you had for inflation? I is will that, tell you that the that U.S. Re- deficit will will continue our- to go down in a very significant way with hyperinflation. I agree with you, but at the same time, I, I, I hate to say it, but you know, if you want, if you're looking for a, a lining in the in the dark clouds, well, that is the lining. You're absolutely right because you've put the variables together and you've gone to the the nexus of it, and you've said, "Hey, look, the good news is that we're going to have a reduction in our debt." Uh, because we, I, I get that inflation is going to create that, um, right? And that, and 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 that's that's the positive. But if the government can't do anything about its deficit, that's the la- the the place of last resort. So I'm not exactly convinced that the government is going to move quickly enough to bring inflation down because. There, it, 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 the government may need inflation. Well, let's talk about the, now. The, I'm not an economist, so know. you know people should take what I'm saying about the economy with a grain of salt. But and and in an inflationary environment, you have to remember you don't want to be holding cash. You want to be holding hard assets. Go out and buy cars, houses, anything that is tangible. Anything that's <laughs> tangible uh, yeah. will go up in value. So. You know, don't don't all of you retirees like us, you know, don't don't hold on to cash. Since you and I have been, uh, it's been seven years, you know, we've seen the invention of uh, Bitcoin. And I'm not going to take a lot of time off on this. 
going to talk about the construct of money, how we actually think of currency. Obviously, today we're seeing a new currency, a different currency, um, but still it's a construct that was made up. Just like the currency was supposed to be backed by gold, it certainly isn't anymore. It's not backed by something hard, like you were saying, an asset like gold of value. Um, do you have any thoughts about it from your perspective? And then we'll go back to these other questions because we, we kind of got off on this tangent around the, the economy. But this whole construct of currency, the construct of the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin being kind of fought by many financial institutions today and they're trying to figure out how to do it, what where to go with it and whatever. What would be Rebecca Costa's take on uh, just that whole construct of currency and the new Bitcoin? Well, any currency needs critical mass, you know, in terms of acceptance. So one of the principles that I talk about in my book, just to tie Bitcoin back into it, is that there can be no change without critical mass. Right. Right. So using an example of the Vietnam War, right, um, for years, people were trying to get out of the Vietnam War through several presidents. And it wasn't until mothers and fathers got out in the streets because the the jungles of Vietnam were being brought brought into their living room on black and white TV, I believe. It Every was, night. Uh, I remember watching it. <laughs> yeah. And, and suddenly they were seeing, you know, 18 year old drafted boys right on their bellies in the jungles of Vietnam being killed. And that spurred mothers and fathers and families, brothers and sisters to get out in the street. Um, it is said that you have to have 3%, somewhere between one and 3% of the population, right? Uh, adopt anything, right? Uh, or, or protest. Uh, but that critical mass of that population, until you get to that threshold, the change isn't possible. That was uh, true of civil rights. It's true of the Vietnam War. It's true of uh, phones, uh, the internet. Till you get to that one to three uh, percent threshold of critical mass, you're not really going to see a change. We're below that on Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin feels like this strange currency that might be a ruse because right. nobody, nobody, because people don't understand the technology behind it. But we also don't understand how currency is valued. Correct. So I don't see any difference. I mean, it used to be, as you point out, tied to gold. Uh, but but then we got away from that. Now it's just politically valued, right? right, right. Uh, and it, it is whatever you say it is. And it's the same with Bitcoin. It is whatever you say it is. So I frankly don't see much of a difference if you don't understand the engine that's producing uh, regular paper and coin currency, then, you know, what, why do you care about Bitcoin? Would predictive analytics, from your estimation, not that you know the answer to this question, actually see it hitting critical mass where the adoption of it is more, you know, we're seeing it using it on credit cards, we're able to trade it, we're able to do things with it, which we're, we're getting seeing, there. We're getting, we're getting there. Bitcoin, uh, 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 you know, I don't want to say Bitcoin because that's only one type. I know, of I understand. I mean, I'm going to say cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency. Crypto, cryptocurrency. 
Yeah. Right. First of all, I think there's a there's a name problem with crypto because it sounds like you're being ripped off yeah. to begin with. But but cryptocurrency <laughs> uh, is already gaining so much momentum. Yeah. Right. Uh, that banks are having to adapt and and people are having to accept it. You know, Amazon, all of these guys. So. Uh, you're already getting to that 3%. That critical mass. Uh, so you're just so not there again, yet. as we look at um, predaptation, right? Let's let's look at the future. If something's headed toward 1% to 3% critical mass, it's going to go mainstream. We don't have to fight it. We don't have to guess. You know, we're not making bets when we make investments in the future. We know 3%, it's mainstream. Yeah. So if you, see, if you see the population moving in that direction and you're getting close there, double down on your investments. You see, it's, it, it, the future is not unknown. Good, I should plug in this morning. We know what's coming. Plug in this morning at 38,000, which is the lowest, or 35, the lowest it's been in a long time. Now, we're going to switch gears for a second because okay. we've talked about a lot of really good, juicy stuff. Uh, and we've informed our listeners, at least from the social biologist standpoint, what how this limbic brain works. And it's pretty hard to get us moving in, in a direction. We kind of wait until it's right smack dab in front of us. It's almost like a train coming to hit us. We finally move out of the way. You tell this great story about wanting to get to purchase a, a Volkswagen Bug when you were 16 years old. I love this part in the book, <laughs> but that you that your you didn't want to ask your father's advice. Um, but your dad, you know, I your, was very stubborn when your I. Your dad 16. had advice Be anyway. Surprised. Yeah, he, your dad had advice anyway. He said, uh, "Well, when you look under there, make sure there's no oil leaks." Um, remember that. I don't know why I remember that statement you made, but. I could see your dad talking to you at 16 when I was reading that. That was that was like me. I was like, oh, I, I and that was my first call. Car was a bug. And I and I chopped it all up and made it into a little dune buggy, right? So you can tell the story which leads to us understanding the advancement in technology in automobiles. Uh now we're at autonomous drivers. Now we've got electric cars to to drive the cars longer because then you talk about your car that you have today that has 270,000 or 90,000 miles on it. And I was like thinking, I'm, I'm, you probably don't have that car anymore because you wrote this book in 2017. Uh, so I presume- No, I have it. I you have still it. have it. How many yeah. miles is on it now? Uh, well, I've, I've garaged it because I have another, I have a hybrid that I drive most of the right. time and that, that it was a Toyota Land Cruiser. Right. Uh, I took it in- I think at 275,000 miles or something, I took it into the Toyota dealer who I had have, had servicing it because I was driving it from my home in California up to Oregon when I moved here. Right. And um, uh, I said, look, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a gal, I, you know, not unusual. I don't know about cars uh, because at, during, when I was growing up, we didn't learn about cars. You know, we were learning about typing and home economics. Right. Um, that's how it was. I mean, I'm not saying it was right. I'm just saying that's how it was. And I said, I, I, I'm going to be driving a really long distance. Could you take a look at it? And they attached a bunch of wires and they said, why don't you leave it for a day? We'll just check the whole thing out so you're safe for your trip. 
the guy came back and he said, this is going to be good for another 290,000 miles. He said 500,000 miles. I think I read. Yeah. And, yeah. And yeah he said 500,000 miles on a Toyota Land Cruiser. No problem. It, one that you have serviced this well. And he said, by the way, in Africa, they're no longer driving Range Rovers. They're driving Toyota Land Cruisers. Because these are like tanks. They just, you know, if you service them right, they just keep going and going and going. I was very shocked because, as you point out, when I was 16, I had uh, I had a little part-time job babysitting and, and house-sitting for people and all of that. And I saved up enough money that I could afford a used bug, uh, Volkswagen bug. And I was I was very excited to go get a car, and my father kept offering to help me. And I was very stubborn, and I didn't. I didn't like my parents. Unlike you know, like a lot of teenagers, I when you're I sixteen, you're sixteen. Yeah. You don't like. I knew kids. better. And uh, one day when he was leaving for work, he said, "Well, I know you don't want my help. Um, so uh, I'll tell you what. Um, just look for oil under the car. Any droppings of oil, and if the car has a hundred thousand miles on it, you're you're begging for trouble." Right. I remember him saying that. 100,000 miles meant something, right, in the 1970s. Now, we're in 2022. In the 1970s, a car that had 100,000 miles on it was likely to have a transmission problem, an engine problem. You were were in for trouble. You were in for trouble. Think about that now. 100,000 miles to 500,000 miles. Right. On my Land Cruiser. Think about electric cars. Think about autonomous cars. Think about in my lifetime what has happened, right? And why has that happened? It happened because along the way we invented technologies that allowed us to build better engines, to predict what was going to fail first, second, third, fourth, and to address those. And as we kept perfecting, the longevity of life of that vehicle went on and on and on. The same thing is happening in healthcare. Think about the extension of life right now. Oh, yeah. Think about your parts, your knees, your elbows, you know, your your, your fingers, (laughs) your your heart that are wearing out because you're living longer. And think about 3D printers that are now in the operating room that now can build a custom part for you that a surgeon can almost on an outpatient basis. You won't be in the hospital more than one or two days before they send you off to physical therapy. I mean, think about what is going on, right? And why is that? Because we could predict what's going to fail. We could predict what was going to happen. Now, In 1970, if you needed a replacement part, it was a cadaver part. A cadaver. Some dead body's part was put in your body, and your odds of rejection were extremely high. Yeah. No, you you cite some really good points regarding the advancement of technology in healthcare, in automobiles, and all of these things. And, And I would add to that, you know, from the automobile standpoint, I don't know what big data says right now. And I would have a guess that the insurance company would tell you that most people are telling their insurance carriers they're driving less than 10,000 miles a year. The pandemic really put a kibosh on people driving to work. It also put a huge kibosh. Now, I know the airlines are back flying like crazy now. But the point is, 
I think that's here to stay. I don't think we're going to have as big a commutes anymore or as many cars on the freeway or as many of anything because of the acceptance. Like Airbnb just said the other day, live anywhere in the country and work for our company and you can stay in one of the Airbnb and it's going to attract the right kind of people that they want. Um, You know, when you look at these things that are changing, that'll actually have an impact on CO2 emissions as well. Um, I'm looking at it from an environmental standpoint as well. Do you know anything about big data that would say with since the pandemic, we've had a reduction in our driving and we've had a reduction in CO2 emissions? Um, it's it's difficult to say the impact on COT, CO2 emissions over the long haul. You know, I'm an evolutionary biologist by training, and I look at data sets over millions of years. Okay, well, not that's too- 12 months or yeah. 24 months, right? Right. right. So um, when I'm looking at trends, I'm looking at trends over many, 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 many years. So it's difficult to answer that question. What I can tell you is that with autonomous vehicles, and even with the, the um, emergence of Uber, you know, right. and, and uh, you know, uh, kind Lyft. of uh, transportation on demand. Yeah, that, Lyft and Uber. Yeah, yeah Lyft and Uber. Um, the, the, the transportation on demand market probably is going to have a greater effect or equal effect as the work from home um, idea. I think that um, and, 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 and a third factor is that we see that millennials and uh, Gen X's don't really want to own things. Correct. That many of them don't want to own a house. They just want to rent a better house. <laughs> um, and I, so I think this uh, idea of uh, people owning a vehicle will probably erode. I, agree. Uh, I think people don't want to pay the insurance. They don't want to maintain it. Um, and and uh, oh, and and if transportation on demand becomes uh, increasingly easy because uh, I don't have to call a Lyft or Uber anymore, uh, I just have to poke my phone, and a driverless vehicle will immediately the nearest driverless driverless vehicle will come and pick me up. Right. Uh, there's no need for me to own a, a vehicle at that point. I see that happening. Yeah. I watched yeah. um, uh, Anderson Cooper um, report on 60 Minutes about the, I'm going to call it the flying car. But the mm-hmm. FAA right now is very close to approving, they say with the next two years, um, Uber-like vehicles where four to six people will get them in, into them and be able to fly short distances at very inexpensive prices. And they'll continue to drive those prices down because they're all battery powered. They're all, these are all um, battery powered uh, vehicles that are flying in the air. And I think it's fascinating to see the advancement and the amount of investment that's being put in by many different companies to actually perfect this technology. And there's one company that is doing it autonomous with no pilot. Um, so now we're looking at, you know, I, I must remember when I was a kid watching the Jetsons, you know, it's like I had a robot in the house and I flew around in a little spaceship. Um, but it, it's, it is going there. We are getting there. And you talked about a great. Well, well, we, we've been trying to, uh, perfect, uh, uh, 
flying cars for the past 12 years. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're only going to cost about $60,000. Uh, and you only need the runway space uh, equivalent to a football field. Yeah, you don't even need so, that. But you will see along the sides of the freeway are those landing pads, those yeah. those takeoff and landing pads. So you can imagine you're driving along, you run into traffic, your your vehicle uh, lifts up out of traffic. The ones the that I spot, the ones right, that I finds saw the runway Rebecca. spot and takes off. Um, but uh, those are those have been around. Those those vehicles have been tested and approved in Europe and Scandinavian countries uh, for over a decade. It's they're just coming into the U.S. right now, and we have a lot of um, FAA issues. I mean, we have to we 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 have to create the infrastructure that makes it safe for those vehicles, and that is very slow, as you know. Edward Wilson's quote. Uh, we have Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Yeah, and that's that's the best way to sum up where we stand. Well, today. probably in our lifetime, it's coming. And the reality is, is that uh, the show I saw uh, with Anderson Cooper, those were vertical. There was no runway required. They were lifting off just like like helicopters. So the reality is, you needed no runway. You needed no nothing. So. But I right. do want- um, and, you know, some of those will will probably I mean, I, I think the market will diversify. Some might need runways, some might be vertical. There will be different price structures, uh, different operating systems will run them. Uh, but it's coming you know, again. Remember, when we get to the one to three percent critical mass, it's going to be mainstream and, and available to anybody. Well, let's go to the healthcare for a minute. I'm going to switch topics. You. Mm-hmm. You cited a great story in the book about fuzzy logics and the ability to predict opioid abuse before the pres- the prescription was handed to the patient. I f- did not know this. I was like totally informed. Could you explain how this fuzzy logics works and how it's being used to proactively reduce the opioid problem and why this technology is being used to predict accurately um the other problems that might occur as well. I mean, I... Well, as, as you know, we have a, a, a really big fentanyl issue. Uh, yeah, we've got a huge drug problem huge. in this country. Um, and it hasn't been attacked. But if this computer system can actually pre- predict accurately, and I think you said in the book, like 90% accuracy prediction, that if I hand you this prescription, I know you're going to abuse it. Well, uh, again, this is this is all about data, right? Yeah, the so data. So if you based string on enough data points together, your right. predictions become very accurate. So if I uh, if I monitor your Fitbit data, your amount of physical activity, if I have information about your behaviors, right? Whether you tend to be violent, whether you've had problems with alcohol in the past, whether you overspend. Um, uh, and, and, and allow yourself to get into debt. A lot of different and surprising, sometimes surprising uh, behavioral metrics, like do you have someone that you can reach out to in times of trouble that live within one mile of you? Mm-hmm. Now, you might not think that matters. It actually does. So, so uh, uh, a lot of these behavioral metrics, geographic metrics, uh, all of these things combined, 
and your physical and, and medical condition, what condition you're trying to mitigate by, by going on uh, pain medication, uh, your history with uh, uh, any kind of uh, uh, medical challenges that you've had, uh, your family's history. When we take millions of data points and we put them in the computer, right. the computer will tell us if you are highly predisposed to become addicted or very low, have a very low probability of becoming addicted. Now, I know for myself, I would come in at low because there's no addiction in my family, which could be hereditary. Your, your predisposition can right. be a hereditary uh, uh, inclination. Doesn't mean you will, but it means you could be predisposed. So I would come in very low because when I go to the dentist, they give me painkillers. I never finish the painkillers. Right. You know, I, I think pain is there for a reason to remind me that not to do stuff like go eat a jawbreaker. <laughs> you know, um, it's there as a reminder. So as a biologist, I go, no, I, I, the pain is good. I'm going to let the pain, you know, settle itself. Do you remember uh, juju beads? So no, no. So I, I, oh. I don't, I, I would not, I would be in the low category, but here's the thing. By taking a questionnaire, opening up your medical information to a physician in advance, we can use artificial intelligence to predict your likelihood of becoming addicted. Mm -hmm. Here's what I don't understand. Wouldn't it be a good idea before I write you a prescription, because 90% of the people that move on to fentanyl and heroin got a doctor's prescription. They started on a doctor's prescription. This is very important to know. They got started legally and then went to illegal street drugs. So wouldn't it be a good idea to require every physician to test that patient before they wrote that first subscription, uh, the pr prescription? An awful good idea. Yeah, yeah, because if I knew you were in the 90% probability of becoming addicted, I could guide you toward a, a, a different pain medication, right? right? Right. But I don't even have that opportunity when I don't have the when I'm not taking advantage of all the knowledge and data that is available to me as a physician. And so this is where we are not taking advantage of the data to predapt to do something in the present to avoid a negative outcome. I'm still back to that. We have the knowledge. We're not acting on it. No, it, but look, uh, I agree with everything you said. And I also believe that you're saying, why aren't we acting on it? Because we saw during Trump's administration, him try and do stuff with the, the opioid addiction. Um, but agreed that if we have these predictive abilities to look at data set points, uh, what act next action would, I don't know, does the legislature say, hey, doctor, you've got to do this before you make yes, this? Yes, yes. I mean, this. the government could the government could contract with Fuzzy Logics to develop this program and say, before you can write a prescription, you must put this data in and we will tell you the likelihood. And think I think about that as a public I, service, a, I a, think a it's free a great public service that says before you can write the subscription. And then once you do, if the person is above the 50 percent probability level, 
you can't write the prescription. And if they're below the 50% or 30% or 20%, wherever you want to set the level, we'll give you a code and you have to put that on the prescription. Right. 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 I mean, there's so many, there's so many ways that we could avoid this. And by the way, for people that may, might know someone or are suffering with, with fentanyl addiction, we don't have cures for addiction. We can mitigate, we can manage, but once you've become addicted, you're an addict. Yeah. Yes, right. Yes. Your likelihood of going back is very high, particularly on a drug like fentanyl. So you're sentencing someone to a lifelong battle with addiction once they go down that road. So, so this, so is, this brings this is up just unacceptable. This brings up an issue of just when is the species, if you're looking at millions of years in your studies, going to transmute so that the ethics in which we operate as a species says, I shouldn't, I don't need the government to tell me to do that. I have the data on my own. I know that I should be doing that versus a law being written that says I've got to do this to write this prescription. I mean, it to me, it comes down to ethics and morals and all kinds of things that we're talking about. And I, I know that we're, I don't know, we're, we are, we're almost like the consciousness level of the society at times seems so low. Well, I don't, I don't attribute it to consciousness. I, well, I know there are a lot of people that listen to your program and, and want to make it an ethical or spiritual issue. To, to me, I, I don't, as a scientist, I don't delve in, in that area. My specific area of interest is how we're hardwired, how we've evolved to, yes. to behave, right? To react, to respond versus the information we now have, right? Got you it. started out this, this discussion saying, why aren't those in alignment? And that is because we have not come to an honest assessment of what this biological spacesuit is designed to do, right? Versus what the environment is requiring of us. We're right. out of alignment with progress. Progress has moved at the speed of light and evolution is crawling. Got it. And, and so we have this schizophrenia. This is the first time in human history where we, you know, think about it. The Neanderthals didn't know what was coming. They didn't, couldn't have known if climate change was coming. They didn't know addiction was going rampant. They didn't understand <laughs> right. how viruses move. Um, you know, we're the first group of humans that have the knowledge of the future and are doing nothing about it. Yeah, it's... <laughs> and, it's a, and we're going to look bad. A hundred million years from now, I'm going to tell you, this this group of, of humans, this era... The techno, I call it the, the technolithic era, is going to look really bad. I would agree. Because we knew and didn't respond. And we knew, but we didn't do. Hey, yes. Rebecca, you give the readers in this book 12 principles in the book that I believe are kind of paramount uh, to pre-adaptation. Um, we don't need to speak of all of them. I chose the one before you started talking about critical mass as my selected one to speak about. 
Um, but maybe we ought to choose one of the other ones and say, speak about some of the principles and choose one maybe other than critical mass, because we've talked enough about that one. That's a prerequisite for change is what you said about the critical mass. Do you want to pick another one out of the book? Sure. Uh, I, I will say that in a complex environment, right, when you have so much data and so much information, you tend to want to freeze. And freeze is not an adaptive strategy. It is not. I agree. <laughs> so you have to keep moving. You have to make decisions every day about your life. So one of the things when you're when you're met with greater complexity than your brain can really manage or handle without the help of a computer, um, the best thing to do is to think about diversification. Diversification is an antidote to complexity. So the example that I use is uh, maybe you're investing on Wall Street, right? Uh, it's so complex. You're not a brave broker. Maybe you trust your broker. Maybe you don't. Maybe he's making commissions on his trades and, you know, you don't really know what's going on. But, but one thing you do know is if you diversify, you're pretty safe. So you put some money in bonds and you put some money in ETFs and stocks, right? And spiders. And you, and you put some money in real estate, maybe. And you, and you, and you buy a car and you, and you, and you kind of spread your money around with the idea that when one thing goes up, the other thing might go down, but you, but you hope to come out whole. That's how us retirees manage our money. We just go, I, I can't make winning bets because the idea that you're going to make a winning bet each and every time is called a gambler. And I'm not a gambler. So, so I, I watch it. Bonds go down, stocks go up, you know, uh, uh, you know, they won't pay much on CDs. So maybe I'm going to do corporate bonds. I, I just move. So your, so your principle here is diversification diversify. So that, what does that mean? That means when you have to make any kind of decision, the quick, the first quick decision, the first thing that you ought to think about is, is it mutually exclusive? Mm -hmm. Right? We, our brains want it to be this or this. I stay married or I get divorced. You know, uh, uh, I buy the car or I don't buy, you know, I, my kid goes to college or doesn't go to college. We tend to want to, our, our brains want to bifurcate. It wants to go to a simple, it wants if, to go to simple, then. yes or no. It goes to uh, if then. And 99% of the time, there are many, many, many options. Mm -hmm. And if you can choose multiple options, choose multiple options because your odds of betting correctly get lower and lower and lower the more choices there are. And there mm -hmm. have never been more choices than there are today. So mm -hmm. in a complex environment, when there are more uh, poor choices than good ones, you have to diversify. And then the most important thing, forgive yourself when you're wrong immediately <laughs> that's Don't a psychological on one <laughs> i get it i get it we're all there um, i know Pe people think you know gee you write about you know uh, the future but you're so cheerful and you seem so happy and well adjusted and everything and i said well i forgive myself instantly <laughs> well, well that <laughs> and, goes and along that goes along with the personal growth show that i've been doing for 15 years that you know 
look, number one, we're 100% responsible for our own actions, uh, nobody else. We can't blame the outside world for what happens to us. If you choose happiness first, that's what you're going to have in your life, uh, because the reality is you need to you need to make a choice. Uh, and that brings me to this question. You mentioned that free will is not always free, that for centuries we've been struggling to come to terms with the fact that human beings are born with predispositions. Oh, most certainly are we. Uh, how much of our inherited programming can be overridden so that we can adopt and adapt uh, what is to come in the future? And how will our species have to transform in your estimation? Well, the biggest lie that was told that has harmed us so badly is the, the blank slate lie. You're born a blank slate and your parents write on it, and your teachers write on it, and your experiences write on it. And then that made you you. Everybody went, oh, okay, simple. But we've left out biology. We left out your hard wiring. You what know, is your well, belief? What is your belief around epigenetics? Well, we, first of all, the minute you say epigenetics, everyone's going to turn the program off. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, epigenetics is a new field, and it's a controversial field. But I want to get to the things that are not controversial. Okay. You're born predisposed for certain cancers. Okay. You're, you're born predisposed for certain behaviors. If your father or mother were violent sociopaths, that's a heritable quality. As we found in the Las Vegas uh, uh, mass murder, the mass Dude. shooter, mm -hmm. his father was a, a violent sociopath that was imprisoned for life. And unfortunately, he was given some uh, drugs, diazepam, which should never be given to somebody who has that family history, right? So six months before he went to Las Vegas with his guns and shot into that concert, they, we, we can go backwards, but I'm asking us to go forward. I'm asking us to say, if we know we have genetic and behavioral predispositions, it doesn't mean you're going to become a mass murderer. It means you're predisposed. You should not be prescribed diazepam. You should watch your own behavior and say, you know, am I, am I pushing people away? Am I isolating? You know, should I go and get help? I mean, wouldn't it be good to acknowledge the hard wiring so that we can do something about it before it becomes problematic? And, and so the blank slate idea is a lie that it's very dangerous because we nobody taught us to stand on our two feet. Nobody taught us to like certain music when we're a toddler. You know, nobody, nobody taught us to, um, uh, you know, I don't know, smile at our parents so they would pick us up. These are, these are behaviors that are innate. And those behaviors don't end when we're a child. They continue, they continue when we're a, an adult. So you might have a predisposition for, you know, the man, um, Craig Vettner, who, who uh, broke down, was responsible for breaking down the human genome. He discovered he had a predisposition for antisocial behavior. Mm -hmm. This was the first genome that was broken down. 
And when he discovered that, it explained a lot about why he was an introvert and he preferred not being around people. But as a but as a biologist, don't you believe that these environments? You know, you look at. I remember Margaret Wheatley and speaking about all of these environments, and we look at cultures inside of companies and where we work and who who we've married and all these other kind of things. They all influences. They all are huge influences on who we become. I don't take the fact that because my parents were my parents, that I was predisposed to a lot of things. That's maybe where we do disagree somewhat. I think you can create through your environments and choices that you make a new life for yourself. This is inside personal growth. This is all about people transforming their you lives. Can. You can. Yes. I, yes. I, we're not in disagreement. Right. It's the nature versus nurture, right. but I'm asking us not to deny nature. Well, I, I'm not denying it. I know that my, you know, my right. dad if dies. You're pre- and- if you're predisposed to certain cancers, there are actions you can take, foods you can eat, live a healthy lifestyle, yes. go in and get regular checkups. There are things you can do, yes. right? To, yes. no, don't smoke. I mean, there are things you can do to not trigger that. And there are things you can do that make you much more likely, right, to trigger that cancer. We don't know how the genetic behaviors or diseases or anything are triggered. We don't understand that mechanism right now. But we know that there are certain things that we should try to stay away from. Of course. Uh, and, And in my family, I had two parents that were prone to alcoholism. So I am very, very careful right? In the amount of alcohol that I am around or that I drink, right? Not that drinking would make me an alcoholic, but with two parents like that, why take the chance? Oh, right? I, I, I mean, I, I, I think more. it's better to, to subscribe to the better safe than sorry. Look, what you have done is you have consciously chosen to take actions that would help you. Like when you get in a room and there's a lot of wine flowing, you're probably the kind of person maybe has one glass of wine and says, great, that's it. That's the limit. You understand yeah. that because you don't want to go down that path. And I think that's being aware. And awareness is a huge factor in us yeah. changing anything in our life. And as long as we're aware and we're consciously aware, we can make good choices. Now, And the other thing it does is it helps you not to be judgmental. If everybody else wants to drink a bottle a piece of wine... Right. They don't have the same predisposition I do. So right. have at it. Have a great time. I'm agree with you on that one because I'm not a big drinker. I'm not a drinker at all. But if I do drink, it's like maybe one little sip. Um, and it's not because there was predisposition in my family because what happens when I drink alcohol, I get heartburn. I don't even, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it literally... It literally makes my stomach upset, so I, I don't do it. But I do kombucha, and that seems to be okay. Um, hey, look, in in the last question here, and there were quite a few questions I missed, but you know, the book is filled with great stories. So thank you. Examples, thank you. Fifteen pages of facts, thank you, because they're all listed in the back. What would you like to leave the listeners with to allow them to better predict their future? And as you end the book uh, and become the aspiring masters of the universe as that, I think those were the last words in that chapter on the last chapter. 
Well, we, we have such a wonderful opportunity to take the data that we're amassing, right? And to use uh, quantum computers, artificial intelligence, and predictive analytics to head off negative outcomes for not just humanity, but individually, like heading off the potential for becoming an addict through uh, a doctor's prescription of an opioid. Um, we have so much information, uh, but we have to come to terms with the fact that biologically, we're not designed to respond to that information. And so if we could just close that gap a little bit through awareness, through awareness, as you point out, that, that, that is the bridge. That's the bridge between the, the data that we have, right, and the, and the action that we're not designed to take, mm -hmm. is when you have awareness, you're, you're able to then translate that into some action for yourself or for society uh, at large. And so, you know, my, my hope is that by acknowledging what, the, what physiological uh, obstacles we have, right? We're still looking for lions in the Serengeti when that isn't our situation anymore. There are no lions and I'm not craw crawling around the Serengeti waiting to be eaten. <laughs> so that's not our situation anymore. So we can use the data to pre-dapt and, uh, and I hope that people will get the book and that they will see that um, there's a reason for optimism. Well, you know, all I can say is that of those examples, of those facts, of those stories that you tell, it starts to get put a picture together for the reader of pre-adaptation. In other words, what we really need to do. And then I say, the as you said, don't freeze. Uh, you basically want to diversify, no matter what it is, because it's going to do it. And I think in this world today, as we speak here, uh, today is May the 6th. It's my son's 41st birthday. Um, that, that, that we need more uh, ability to make these decisions, right? We need to be able to take the actions. And it's books like yours that get us to understand why we don't. So it makes us aware of how we can take the action. And I want to thank you for that because it's, it's books that stimulate these thoughts that allow us to say, okay, great. I understand how I'm hardwired. Uh, I understand that I can change it. And I understand what I have to do about it to make the change. So thank you. Thank you for the book. Thank you for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending some time with our listeners. And for all my listeners, I'm going to pull the book over again. We're going to put a link to the book. It's called On the Verge. I love the little picture with the little girl on there. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we're going to, uh, she looks like a mad scientist. Uh, we're literally That going, describes me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So is that you as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it could have been. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we will put a link to this book. We will put a link to Rebecca's uh, website as well. Please reach out to her. Please get the book. Uh, better understand your world, better understand yourself so you can make better choices. Um, thanks so much for being on. Thank you for having me back. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. 
And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again, and have a wonderful day.